episode 133 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of July, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I could see the shininess of your teeth and your tan from that. Hi. Well done. Anyway, let's get straight on with it. So later on, Graham and I will be talking to Daniel Foray of Elementary OS fame. But first, let's do first impressions. So we looked at Fedora Silverblue. That is an immutable version of Fedora Workstation. The idea being that you can guarantee that it's going to be completely the same on any machine that you install it on. And that means that there are certain restrictions and a lot of different ways of doing things. So who's going to go first with their first impressions of it then? Yeah, I've got a little something to say. Um, Way back when, when I worked on Ubuntu desktop, a few people came up with uh, similar ideas to Silverblue, based around snaps, of course, saying that the base OS should be this sort of fixed known quantity, and the only thing that should change is the apps on top of it. And generally speaking, I was against the idea because I felt like one of the reasons that people like Linux desktops is that ability to fiddle. And if you wanted something which was uh, that locked down, then perhaps Linux wasn't really where it was at. So when I installed Silverblue, I was expecting to find that I was using it with one hand tied behind my back, that all of the time I would find these little annoyances that meant I couldn't do the thing that I wanted to do because that was in the special file system and I was only allowed to play in the uh, in the walled garden. And actually, it seems I was wrong. I didn't have any of those problems. Now, I have only used it for a few hours, but... I got it installed. There were a few problems along the way. As usual, disk partitioning was tricky. The usual Fedora installer pain was there. But I got it installed. I got it working. It had Firefox installed out of the box. I installed a few apps from GNOME Software. It seemed to default to the RPM instead of the Flatpak a few times, but I was able to work around that. It was okay. And... I have used it and it has not broken and I didn't find any problems getting on with it. GNOME 4 aside, I was generally pretty pleased with using Silverblue and I think I would definitely take it for a longer test drive next time. You talked about the partitioning. That's an issue I came up with. If you try and do custom partitioning, it will let you do stuff that won't work and will leave you with a system that won't boot. And so if you read the documentation, it says just stick to automatic partitioning, give it the whole disk. If you really want to do custom, then here's some tips, but your mileage may vary, which is sort of fair enough, I suppose, but uh, it meant that I had to put a separate SSD in. So could be better on that front, but at least the documentation was clear there. I don't have much more to add um, that Will didn't cover, actually, It's because it's pretty straightforward once you get it running. But I will say that I was also pretty cynical about the idea, but they've done a really good job of pulling it all together. I quite like the idea of kind of isolated apps and isolated system, but it's interesting that the terminology fits quite well. I like the idea that when you do install RPMs, for example, you have to rebuild the image and then you have to reboot. And the idea of rebooting when you've kind of augmented a write-only image makes sense, much better sense than kind of rebooting under other circumstances. So I could see myself using something like this for a specific purpose. 
especially as like a halfway house between kind of an IoT device and a desktop where I want complete freedom, but something that I maybe don't want to touch that often that I know is going to stay up to date. And yeah, if you're used to dealing with flat packs, there isn't much to surprise you apart from maybe the change of terminology and things like rebuilding the image. With flat packs, I was a bit confused as to the lack of software initially, mm. but then in the documentation it said, go here, download this file, apply it to the software center, and then you'll have access to FlatHub. And then suddenly I had access to loads of software. And then for some applications, you had a choice of either the Flatpak or the RPM OS tree version, which, as we said, means that you have to reboot. And so it's nice to have both options, I think. And there's also command line options as well. You don't have to use the GUI. Yeah, I was using the Rawhide version, so I'd actually assume that having to add the flat pack mirror manually was just a step for Rawhide. But yeah, it's weird that they haven't made that part of the install. Yeah, and doing OS upgrades means that, again, you have to rebuild the image and then reboot. And that's pretty straightforward to do. It's just rpm-os tree upgrade, I think. And you can do a dash dash check to see what's going to happen before you commit to it, which... It's a totally different way of doing things, but it does seem to work pretty well. I feel you're all so optimistic. I don't know whether I downloaded the wrong thing, but it <laughs> just didn't work for me whatsoever. Um, like I tried uh, the GNOME one to start off with because what I was secretly going to do was to switch over to the KDE one, which you have to download the GNOME one first. And I got all sorts of weird things about unable to install English as not supported popped up. And I was like, oh, I don't even know what the hell that means. And then... Uh, I went to install software and like everything didn't work in the installer because I obviously didn't read the instructions, so I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Um, but I flicked over to KDE, and what annoyed me was that I found that a lot of no maps masquerading in the KDE menu, like image viewer and document viewer. I was like, what the hell are they? I thought I thought initially that I'd set the K menu to be by description and not application name, but no, they were just the no maps. So I said, oh, I'll just install Gwenview. And I had to use the command line because Discover didn't work remotely at all. Everything was disabled in that for some reason. And um, I then used the uh, the command line install of it. And I had to restart in order to get the application package, which I thought was just nuts because it was installing some sort of OS tree based way of doing it. And maybe I did it wrong. I have no idea, but it worked. I got Gwenview, but I had to reboot in order to get an application, which I just thought was crazy. So, yeah, I probably just did it all wrong. Well, you did it wrong by using the KDE version or trying to, trying to use the KDE version, which is experimental. I mean, the whole thing is relatively experimental. But the App Center in GNOME didn't even work for me. Everything was, like, disabled. That's very odd. I did see the odd little error. I think I may have seen that that language one. And, you know, so there are some bugs still, but ultimately it worked for me. Right, so instead of the random distribution button, we've got a list of a few distros and a few applications and even one wildcard actually in there. And so we've used the Wheel of Mare, which is actually wheelofnames.com. I never credit it, but I should do. It's it's a great little uh, website. And so if you saw the Fosswalk Live show, which you should do, then you will have seen this before, but unfortunately you just have to imagine it's pretty colours spinning round as I press it. So let's click to spin the wheel. Oh, it's spinning. It's ever so exciting. <laughs> so this rings a bell. What are we going to see here? So it's come up with sync thing. So is this something that any of you are using already? 
I have used it. No, I, I use uh, Nextcloud for my phone syncing off my phone. So, Well, I have got a specific problem to solve, which is backing up my photos. So uh, maybe I'll give that a go. And maybe you lot can find some problem that it can solve as well, because I've heard of it, and I think I've used it briefly, but uh, I've never used it sort of in production, as it were. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. It makes all this possible. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. Let's do some feedback then. And John writes to us, you mentioned on a recent podcast that your scanner does not work under Linux. Have you tried ViewScan, which is V-U-E scan? He says, if you connect via USB, the chances that it will work should be good. They do have a full list of supported scanner models. It is not floss, but it is a father and son shop, and the terms of the license are very reasonable, in my opinion. I've used it on and off, as required, over 15 years now on various OSs. It has revived otherwise scrapped scanners. I was the person who said that my scanner doesn't work, and I know how to make it work in Windows. But this sounds pretty interesting. It's 30 quid if you only want to do basic scanning, which seems pretty reasonable for a small software shop that's making it. So I think if I ever get to the point where I can't make it work in Windows anymore, then I'll check it out. But I've got a Windows partition. I've got a Windows 7 partition that just basically only does that. So I don't think I'm going to need it anytime soon. I've got a scanner which every time I reinstall Ubuntu, I have to go and download some Windows driver from about 2007, extract the cab file, copy some specific binary blobs around, and then I can use my scanner. So I will be interested to give this a go and see if I can make it work. Yeah, I looked at the list of scanners and it is massive. Like They've got, I think, thousands of supported scanners. My super cheap scanner, which is part of the printer, saves scans to uh, Sambashare. Oh, nice. Yeah, I haven't had to worry about it for quite some time. I'm sure it's a really up-to-date and secure version of Samba, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it should be hopefully behind our firewall here. But then I mess it all up by having it sync to my Google Drive with some hacky piece of software. (laughs) Get it out of here. Yeah, but then it can do OCR automatically, you see. I can then... Anything I scan goes on my Google Drive and I can search through the text. Oh, nice. They do offer that with Vscan, but you have to pay a bit more. But uh, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes anyway. Right, so Tom writes in, in the Android iOS debate in 1.30, Joe made a comment about iPhone users having to shell out loads of money for their phones. This isn't necessarily true. My wife and I had low mid-range Android phones for about a decade, and each one we bought, usually around 200 to 300 
£1,000 mark lasted no more than two years before either becoming slow and janky to the point of uselessness, not getting any updates, or usually both. Two years ago, we got fed up with this and bought a refurb iPhone 7 each. They cost us £180. This is an almost five-year-old phone at this point and is still very quick and snappy, and more importantly, still supports the latest iOS and will support the next major version too. When Apple stops supporting 7, we will probably just buy a refurb 8 each, or if we're feeling flush, an X. I don't feel like we miss out on any hardware features in particular. We've fingerprint lock, a really, really good camera, contactless payments, etc. It's the same story with tablets. We've had various Android tablets that have gone out of date and crap even quicker than the phones, whereas our iPad mini lasted maybe five years before losing support, and our iPad Air 2 is still on the latest iOS and still smooth as ever. Right on. This is a really good point, actually, that I've been pulled up on many times when I've said that iPhones are expensive. Yes, they are expensive, but the updates and life cycle of the product is a lot longer. Just last week, there was an Ars Technica headline, OnePlus now has one of the best Android update schedules. And the subheadline is flagship OnePlus phones will get three major OS updates and four years of security updates. And that is considered like top notch in the Android world. Whereas in the iPhone world, you're going to get a lot longer. Obviously, you don't have the option of lineage and stuff like that. But let's face it, that's basically non-existent. That's a, a rounding error. So yeah, I suppose you're right, especially if you get a refurbed one, if you're savvy about it, you can live the iOS lifestyle for less. Yeah, I mean, I, I my iPad is, um, I don't know, third generation, so it's from 2012, and I still use it. But then my Android phone, to be fair, is over five years old and only cost me £300, £350, and that's still kind of going if I hadn't broken the screen several times. Well, that's an interesting angle. I've bought a few cheapo Android phones over the years and when you break a screen on one of those you're kind of out of luck because you can't really get the parts if you break an iphone screen you're guaranteed that the local high street shop will be able to replace the screen i hadn't really thought about it before now so yes join the apple club (laughs) great i will (laughs) (laughs) okay richard said i've listened to your show for several years and i've never heard you discuss the google alternative swiss cows i've used it for a couple of years now and the results are surprisingly good It's the only alternative engine I've stuck with, and they filter out the bad stuff so it's safe for work. Well, that's obviously why none of us are going to use it, eh, Will? (laughs) If you can't get your mucky JPEGs, what's the point of using it? (laughs) I went to it, and it seemed to be very German-focused. I did do some searches in English, and it did work, and it seemed to be better than the other alternatives that I've seen, but ultimately, I I can't see myself switching to it. We've talked about DuckDuckGo and... Brave search and other stuff. Start page. Start page, yeah. And I just can't see myself switching to it. But if anyone else is using it, then do let us know. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. 
Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So the reason that we wanted to talk to you, Dan, is that we were pondering this question about whether all software is going the subscription route. It seems that it is. But then I kind of thought, well, the Linux and open source angle, you are the guy to talk to on that when it comes to monetizing it. So do you agree that that is the way things are going, first of all? I mean, it definitely seems like it's becoming a lot more popular. And I guess the driving force there is that, you know, people are seeing that um, users are less willing to pay large upfront costs for software. Uh, it seems like they're more willing to pay for like very, very small prices. And, uh, you know, developers still need to, to make their shops sustainable. So you either got to cut costs, uh, sell more or sell for a higher price, right? So if they can't sell for a higher price, then they've got to increase the volume of transactions they're doing. And subscriptions seem like the most straightforward way to do that. And this is kind of something that you're doing with Elementary OS and App Center, right? Like if you get updates, you get prompted to pay for those updates. Kind of. So what we did was that you get prompted for an update if you haven't already paid. So it's it's because a lot of people, um, what happens is they go in and they'll go, oh, well, I don't know if I want to buy it yet. So I'm going to type in zero and get it for free. And then if I like it, maybe I'll go back and pay for it. And then they don't ever go back. Um, because it, it's just not on their mind anymore, right? So when the update comes in, then that's, you know, we can reprompt them and go, hey, you know what? It seems like you, you're still using that. You know, do you want to pay for the app now? But, um, you know, Patreon does that kind of uh, uh, subscription on update model, right? Where instead of paying monthly, you pay when new content comes out. So that could be a, an alternative to like, just having subscriptions constantly to make sure that you're getting a more fair exchange from the developer, right? But isn't the kind of whole point of open source software that you own it, whereas with proprietary software, like the Adobe suite, for example, that you don't really own that software. You don't own a copy of it like you used to. You used to have a physical disk or whatever. Now you're just kind of renting access to it in the cloud. But that is kind of anathema to open source, isn't it? As a concept. I don't know, because I still think like if you know, if you buy one version, like you do own that version, right? But then if a developer or a developer studio goes and puts a bunch of time into new features and bug fixes and you know, whatever, like where's the fair compensation for the additional value that they've now added, right? So you have to have some kind of model of, you know, like you said, you'd, if you own the CD, then you'd have to go out and you'd buy the new CD at the next version. But we're kind of expecting now apps to be updated regularly. Like if you don't get an update for something, you know, in a month, then you're like, wow, this developer like doesn't care about this app at all. 
I don't actually think this is anything new. I mean, I used to be involved um, closely with magazines and it was an open secret that the only way to really make money was to get people to subscribe and if possible, get them to use like a direct debit kind of payment so that they will keep paying. And it's just an effective way of actually getting some recurring revenue without always having to guess at what that might be. And I guess that's why it's become so popular with software, even though it does seem opposite to what we think in terms of you buy this app then you can use it indefinitely for the developer that means they can't invest any predictably any future development work on the income yeah absolutely and that's a huge problem as a developer like you you always want to be moving and doing more stuff because it's it's kind of you know not fair i guess to to make some kind of residual income for infinity which i guess is kind of what some people do off of of other media formats but it does seem like there needs to be some level of fairness where you know developers should be able to make a fair income for their work so that they can survive you know but it it is hard because we're getting to a point where we have like subscription fatigue right where we have like so many subscriptions we're managing that it's hard to imagine having a subscription for every single service and every single app and every single website that we use right yeah i mean i guess you're in a really great position to be able to see unlike us maybe that you can see how attitudes perhaps have changed and the effectiveness of the different kind of strategies that you've tried have you seen the kind of an ebb and flow of people firstly kind of being more prepared to pay for the download and then maybe being more willing to pay for updates or is that just something you're continually experimenting with? I do think that like one of the biggest things is messaging and you can set expectations better with the way that uh, we like design the interface or the marketing copy we use. Like the more aggressive we are with payment language, the more users are ready to pay. If you say like, hey, this is free with a donation, then like nobody will give you money. Right. But if you're like, you know, hey, this is, um, you know, like humble indie bundle where they did like a, you know, pay what you want kind of thing. Right. And that's kind of where we got our um, model from. But we're kind of tweaking it and we're trying to now kind of play with a, a pay what you can language and see if that does has any change. Mm. Just these really subtle design tweaks actually set up a lot. But we also noticed that uh, when developers request more money as their default price, that people will choose to pay higher prices for that app. They won't just hit the minimum or, you know, zero or whatever. There must be a ceiling to that though, right? I'd imagine so. Like, um, I, I don't kind of personally go through it every payment, but I, I can't imagine that people are paying more than like $20 for an app. That seems like even that would be a lot. Yeah, because we talked about Ardor on the show, Graham, before. Like, that's only, isn't it a pound or something really cheap? Yeah, that's right. It's whatever, or $1, whatever the minimum is the, for a real number. Yeah. Also, there's a service in that you can always access it, download, so it isn't like a one-off binary. You can always access the latest build of that 6.x release or whatever as well. So, All right, so you get minor version updates, but then if you want 7 or whatever, you have to pay again. Yeah, then, it, then I think it's kind of reset. Right, okay. Probably not on purpose because that happens every few years. Um, it's probably just a logistical thing rather than a blocker right. or a convenient blocker because you can still get it through the distro. I think what's really kind of scary is it seems like we're seeing 
more and more that it's become less common for people to pay for the things they use at all mm-hmm. because they're used to kind of like these really invasive advertising and data mining monetization models. And, uh, you know, I have a buddy who was developing a game and he did a survey of all his uh, users that were testing and was asking about like monetization. And the overwhelming majority of them responded that they would like to be served ads rather than pay. Yeah, I guess people are just used to that now. It's really terrifying, especially if you're trying to build products that are like privacy respecting products or like avoid, you know, if you have like an ethical problem with data mining, which I feel like we should have an ethical problem with that. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's tough if you're coming from that angle and going, well, you know, I don't want to monetize that way because I don't think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> Please pay for my app. <laughs> but could there be an equivalent to what we do on this show? I mean, we have ads, but they're not targeted. There's no data money. It's no, well, I say they're not targeted. They're targeted at the demographic. You're interested in Linux because you're listening to a podcast about it. And so you're probably going to like the stuff that we advertise. Could there be some way of having ads and ad revenue that doesn't rely on data mining? That's kind of what, uh, in some ways, that um, Apple and I, I think Google, too, have done with some kind of things like sponsored search results in the App Store and stuff like that, right? Where they're trying to have like other kinds of uh, like embedded advertising that it seems like it's content. But that also, I think, is kind of negative and creepy in some ways because you can like pay for a spot for your app to be like highlighted above something else, even if it's like not really what the user is looking for. It just seems like any time that you try to inject marketing content into like a space where people are trying to like actually do things like you're only getting in the way it's i guess it's different when you have like an ad break in a radio show kind of thing then you know and maybe that's that sounds terrible but maybe that's the the alternative is like while you're using the app it just pops up an ad that you're gonna hang out on for 30 seconds and then you go about your way i don't know i don't know the answer to that one that's pretty much how a lot of mobile games work isn't it yeah it is and it's it's kind of gross and awful though isn't it like isn't that frustrating (laughs) to have a dumb app thrown up well it is but that's because people aren't used to it right whereas on a podcast which is similar to an old-fashioned radio show it's just the norm isn't it yeah i suppose i don't know i just personally i don't want to live in a world with so many interruptions (laughs) yeah but well that's why i mean i don't want to keep going on about it but that's why we offer the audience the chance to support us on patreon to never hear the adverts again as long as they keep supporting us and you know it's it's that kind of either or like either directly support us or listen to the ads. Yeah, and that's a great point is is offering multiple paths to monetization definitely seems like the best way to go because there are people that have different tolerances and expectations. But I think for me, and being completely honest, there's some sense of throwing money away when you're kind of donating or giving money to Patreon. For example, I'm ashamed to say that I spend more money on proprietary software every every year, probably just, you know, a few hundred dollars than I do donate to open source. And it's simply, I think, because 
I want to kind of own the app that I'm using. I want to have some kind of ownership over it. And because of the nature of open source, I already have that. And then I choose whether to spend money or donate money or support the project in some other way. I've never donated money to the Vim project, for example, despite using it every single day. I mean, that obviously is the kind of barrier you're trying to overcome, Dan. And, and I think that's what we struggle with as a community. Yeah, I think that's a really tough thing is that there is kind of this expectation of things being um, freely available. And when you do that, there's no value proposition, right? Like you're not really compelled to pay as as long as the thing continues to exist. It's only when, you know, we have uh, something catastrophic happen that all of a sudden people are like, oh my gosh, I guess we need to help with funding. It's kind of a tough to to go from that angle. So I think that's why we're trying to lean more into like payment as an expectation up front and not like a freely available plus donations thing. Yeah. And also making people feel like they have a sense of ownership, even when it's an open source project like you can do with Arda, for example, or with other projects where you kind of pay to access them. You actually feel like you're part of the, the movement making the success happen. But also, Arda's quite a good success story in that I think a lot of the subscription and the support framework for Arda comes from universities and colleges teaching kind of music and um, engineering and production, all all those things that typically need hundreds of machines running, I don't know what would be Logic perhaps, or Pro Tools, all costing probably hundreds of dollars per seat. And presumably they pay you know, tens of dollars for the equivalent software sponsored by somebody like Harrison Console. So maybe when the software does have a niche and can kind of grow out in that way, then it it, it can be successful, but it's it, there's not one approach that fits everything. Yeah, definitely. I would absolutely say that that's the, that's the real thing, right? Is that no, there's no one size fits all business model for, for everyone. You got to really know your audience and what your audience is willing to to do and how they're willing to support you. Well, it's been great talking to you, Dan. Uh, we should probably plug the Elementary Developer Weekend that you did fairly recently. The videos will probably be up by the time people hear this. So uh, where's the best way for people to see them? Yeah, you can go to edw.elementary.io and we have uh, both of the live videos for both days up already. And uh, I'm working on um, right now editing and splitting those out so you can see the talks individually. And those will those will probably go up within the next week or two. And people will be really mad if I don't at least dare to ask Elementary OS 6 when. Very, very soon. Um, <laughs> you know, I really wanted to to get the announcement in uh, at EDW, but we just have a couple things that we're wrapping up. You know, it's it's the pains of um, being a primarily volunteer driven organization. Is is sometimes you know you're firing all cylinders, and sometimes you know people have day jobs and exams, and you just kind of you got to hang in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Look forward to it anyway. So uh, talk to you again soon, man. All right. See you around. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the news. But until then, I've been John. I've been Salem. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.